He is risen. Jesus, we are here to celebrate your great work that continues even to this day. We're here to see your name and your kingdom built and increased. We're here because You've made us alive, and we celebrate that. So we ask that, Jesus, you would come among us, and you'd work the same resurrection that's been working for 2,000 years among us, in dead areas, in dead people, in a dead society. Lord, may you resurrect, I pray. Would you speak through Scripture? May we hear And may we respond the way we're supposed to. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So most of you know that on Easter, we gather and we celebrate the fact that God the Son died for us, was buried, and rose again. That's what we celebrate. But the big question is why did God the Son need to die, be buried, and on the third day be resurrected? Why? That's the big question. So I wanted to make it really easy for visitors among us. If you're a visitor, hey, we welcome you. Love that you're here. I wanted to make it real easy for visitor and seminary professor alike to look like a Bible scholar. So we're going to grab our text from Genesis, the first book in the Bible. So you can turn like a pro. Genesis (laughs) chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1. Genesis 9 says this. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. And from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning For the life of a man. Whosoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth. 
and multiply in it. If you're new, let me just give a quick two-minute catch-up. What you see in Genesis chapter 9 is right after this event that is called the flood. Why did there have to be a flood? Two reasons. There was violence and there was vengeance that was taking over God's good creation. So I'll read a quick little guy who kind of exemplifies the attitude that was on earth when God had to flood it. It's in chapter four. You don't have to turn there. The guy's name is Lamech. I call him Lamo. Listen to what he says to catch you up. Genesis 4, 23. And Lamech said to his wives, plural. This is the first guy in the Bible that's recorded to be a polygamist. He's a man that's defying God's order, which is Adam and Eve. One man, one wife, one life. He's defying that now. He's trying to accumulate women to him, a harem. So he says to his wives, plural, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. This happens before the flood. You have this polygamist. Now just think for a moment, you can hear like this arrogance in Lamech, how he speaks to his wives. Imagine for a moment, I spoke to Charity, my wife, like this. So I say to Charity, Charity, hear my voice. You wife of Matt, listen to what I say. What's she gonna do? She's gonna shut up, right? That's ridiculous. <laughs> So you can just hear this like this. He's just arrogant. And then he says this, this guy wounded me, so I killed him. And if you try to get revenge on me, 77 more of you, your dudes will die. There'll be vengeance 77 fold. Here's what's happening before the flood. It's now the life of Lamech, he says, is 77 times more important than the life of the peons out there. I'm a big dude. I'm varsity. And because I killed a peon, his life isn't worth anything. And if you try to get vengeance on me, 77 of you will die. It's now, instead of life being all valuable, there's now a dependence in life. Do you know that for much of human history, that's the way it's been? That if a rich person, a powerful person, went and killed a poor person or a minority, then what would happen to that rich person? Maybe they would pay a fine. They'd figure out some way to get out of it. But if you reverse that, if a poor person or a minority killed a rich, powerful person, what would happen to that poor person? Oh, they'd be strung up, their family with them, everything they owned would be taken from them. There was a disparity throughout much of human history on life. And it started right here with Lamech, who says, my life is worth 77 of your 
lives. So God says, this system of cruelty, this empire idea, I'm putting a stop to it. No way. We're not living under that violence and that vengeance and this disparity of life. And so Noah gets off the ark and the first thing God says to him is this verse six. Super, super important. He says, from now on, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, there's a big capital punishment debate on this text, and that's a good debate, but you have to take this text and put it back in the story of Genesis. What is God trying to stop? Lamech. He's trying to stop this disparity of life that one life is worth a lot more than other lives because of its condition. No way. God is saying, no way. Every single life is valuable. I think we know that. That the value of life is not based on the condition of that life. So let's imagine for a second, I'll try to give you an illustration. What if I had a crisp brand new $100 bill right in my hand? Would you want that crisp $100 bill? Who would want that? Raise your hand. Everyone who's honest. Okay, let's say I took that crisp $100 bill and then I crumpled it all up and I held it up. Would you still want the $100 bill? Yeah. Let's say I take that same $100 bill and then I put it on the ground and I own a horse, four pigs, some goats, 12 chickens, two cats, don't own seven kids, but have seven kids in my home. And I stomp on that $100 bill. I pick it up. Do you still want the $100 bill? Why? Because its value is independent of its condition. It has intrinsic value. God is saying the exact same thing about human life. Every life now has value in fact, God even goes further, and the only currency that can pay for a life is its own currency. Life has to be paid with life because every single life has value intrinsically. The reason why? God gives it. You're made in my image. I have stamped my image on you, and regardless of condition, you are of infinite value. It does not matter if you are old or young, able or unable, if you are pure or impure, immoral or moral. None of those things matter because I have stamped you with my image and now you are of infinite value. So God is stopping the madness of society of the flood by saying every human life has value. It's awesome. Now, there might be somebody out there right now who's saying, Matt, I think that not only human life has value, but every life has value. That the animals also have that same infinite value. I would argue that that's not true. And I think I can prove it to you. I think I can prove it to the most ardent atheist who says all life is the same. Here's how. So my house, I just said, at my house right now, there's a lot of lives a horse, a goat, four pigs, 12 chickens, a cat, a goldfish, seven children, and my wife. There's a lot of life there. Now let's imagine that 
my family goes through some financial hardship. We're not, we're doing great. But just for the sake of argument, my family goes through some kind of financial hardship and it's very hard for me to keep feeding all these mouths. So I have to make a decision. Somebody has to go. Who's going to go? Who here would think it'd be a good idea if I said, Charity, you got to go. <laughs> and if I'm honest, if I'm just doing a, a balance sheet, she costs way more than a horse. <laughs> right? A lot more than a horse. I could own a herd of Clydesdales for what she cost me, right? So just purely financial. Charity, you got to go, right? Or if I'm really honest, the horse is more obedient to me than most of my children. So I'm like, all right, Craigslist, free ad, free kid. Can't feed them, maybe you can. Out to pasture, do whatever you need, right? No, you'd say you're insane. Because we know intrinsically that humans have this stamp on them that gives them value regardless of condition, that we stand in a different place. So God, right after the flood, just says, I'm stopping this thing. Every life has infinite value. Well, then what does that mean for us then, if you think about this? Number one, I think it means this. If we really believe every life has the stamp of God on it, the Imago Dei, that it is of infinite value, do we treat people that way? Because we sure ought to. Every life should be of infinite value to us. So C.S. Lewis, who is a brilliant writer in the 40s and 50s of the 1900s, he has this great essay on this whole idea. And he says this, he says, it is a serious thing to live in a society full of potential gods and goddesses. He says, there are no mortal people, empires and money and nations. Those are mortal. But the person sitting next to you on the bus is a future God or goddess, potentially, and they are immortal. The ones that we exploit, the ones that we joke with, the ones that we rip off, they're eternal and immortal. Do we treat, do we treat people like they're of infinite value? Most people, most people have a good group and the bad guys. The 99% have the 1%, right? The liberals have the Trump supporters. The Trump supporters have the liberals, right? The moral people have the immoral people. The Ford drivers have the Chevy drivers. The Chevy drivers have the Ford drivers. The Dodge drivers hate them all, right? <laughs> There's just, we all have, they're the bad guys. But the Bible would say, no. Regardless of condition, regardless of that, I have stamped that person with my Imago Dei. And you should treat them as if they have infinite value. Secondly, more personally, more to the point of why Jesus died, secondly, it's this. If we have this stamp on us, if we're the pinnacle of God's creation, which we are, if we're all these things, why is it that the animals at my house 
seem so happy and the humans at my house (laughs) don't seem so happy. Why is that? I give the horse some grain, a sunny day, that's the happiest animal on the planet. The cat finds a warm spot with a meal, curls up, it is just ecstatic. Have you heard that, that phrase, as happy as a clam? Do you know what clams do? They filter shark muck and they're happy. Why is that, right? Why is it that my goat finds an old pair of my jeans and is just stoked to eat them? It's the happiest day of its life. And yet, and yet I, we've had 50 goldfish. I have yet to have a goldfish complain to me. Hey, this one quart jar just stinks. I need more room, right? Why? Why when we're the pinnacle, does it seem like we're always so unhappy? And this unhappiness, I'll tell you, it goes from the top to the bottom. I have an article from Vanity Fair with Madonna. Madonna is probably the longest lived celebrity alive right now. Her first hit was in 1982. Does that make you feel old? Makes me feel old. First hit in 1982. She's still making hits. So this Vanity Fair article was asking her these questions like, one of them was, you've had so much success in life. How does that make you feel? Her answer was so interesting to me. She has made over a billion dollars. To compare that, Taylor Swift, 170 million. Like, Taylor Swift's just beginning. A billion dollars. Her answer was this. Every success I have makes me happy for one minute and then I need more. That's the state of the human heart, is it not? That's at the top. Let's just go to you and me. Let me ask you this. It's an easy one. It's a softball. Who here says, you know what, Matt? I have enough money. If you do, I'd love to talk to you about a building we're trying to do. (laughs) Who here would say, I don't want any more money. I am good. Probably nobody. I think we've all done this when we're looking for something. We're looking to buy a car or a house or something. You decide on a budget. Okay, I want to spend $1,000 on a car. So you get on Craigslist and you put $1,000 in there for a car. And you're like, man, there's nothing. So then you expand. Let's go to Portland. They got good deals in Portland. Let's go to Sacramento. Maybe there's something down there, right? And then pretty soon you're like, man, $1,000 doesn't get me much. So then what do you do? Bump it up. What can I get for $1,500? And you start looking at $1,500. After a while, you're like, man, those are kind of nice, but I really want leather. So then it's two grand. And after a while, you're putting in $50,000. What can I get for 50 grand? Man, I'll just start growing marijuana or something. I'll make some money. I'll figure it out. It's never enough. There's always the next, if I just had this gear, this option, this thing, it's in us. This dissatisfaction, this unhappiness. It's why Henry Thoreau would say, most people live lives of quiet desperation because there's in our brains this idea that if we just had a little bit more of something, we'd be happy. We'd be satisfied. But when we get that little bit more, it hasn't. It doesn't. So Forrest Gump had a saying, life is like a box of... I have a saying, life is like a bunch of celery. The more you eat, the hungrier you get because it takes more calories to digest it. That's life, man. Life is like a bunch of celery. The more I eat, the more I consume of it, the more my appetite just seems to increase. Why is that? What's the deal with all this kind of stuff? Right? Why why are we so different than the horse and the goat and the chicken at my house? 
Why are we so different? Well, it's this stamp right here in verse 6. It's this stamp of the Imago Dei. We can all sense that we have a potential that's actually much greater than we're getting at. We can all sense that God wants something for us that we have not been able to get, and it's this untapped thing that drives us. We are created for greatness. We're created to be these, these incredible things, and we're not. I say people. Here's what people are. We're glorious ruins, what we could have been, these castles, these brilliant things. There was this cosmic earthquake that happened and it crumbled us and we can still see in us the design of greatness. But how to put Humpty Dumpty back together, we don't know. How to get back to that castle, what our design was supposed to be. We're supposed to reflect God. Did you know that? Image bearing is that. I'm supposed to reflect God's greatness and his brilliance and his power and his grace. We are supposed to be this. We're supposed to be this on earth. Mirrors that point back at God. Mirrors like the sun that the sun reflects off and this brilliant, beautiful light reflects off of us. But what has happened with each of us is this. That mirror that's supposed to reflect the sunlight back to God has turned around and turned inside. And at best, we become dim. And at worst, humans become dark and wicked and evil. Because what we're supposed to be doing, reflecting God as image bearers, we've turned around and now we reflect ourselves. And we're empty and purposeless. And we become selfish and envious and self-centered. And we're ruined by it because we know this is what we should be, but we're not. So what's the solution? Look down a couple of verses to verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud. You guys know this story. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living, living creature of the earth. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. What's the solution? We can feel this, this weight, this creative thing that's in us, and yet it seems to be ruined and shocked and destroyed. We can feel it. We can sense it. There's this dissatisfaction. What's the solution? What's the solution to chasing this mirage? Well, God gives this covenant a covenant in the Bible is this. It's God saying, I'm going to do this. And covenants often have a sign. Circumcision, the Lord's Supper, baptism. And the sign is really important because it gives a word picture of what God's doing. So God says to Noah here, hey, buddy, the sign of this covenant I'm making is I'm going to put this bow in the sky. I'm going to put this, this bow up there in the sky. What's this bow? 
We think it's a rainbow. It's not. If you look at the word, Hebrew was the original language of the Old Testament of Genesis. It's the word cassette. It's used over 70 times. Every time it's used, it speaks of a weapon, a bow and arrow. So God here is saying, I'm going to take my weapon of war and I'm going to set it in the sky as a sign, as a picture to you of what this covenant means. What in the world does it mean? Here's what it means. C.H. Spurgeon, that great preacher from 150 years ago, I'm stealing from him. He's a good one to steal from. He said, look at the way the bow is pointed. The flood was the, the bow was pointed at earth. The bow is now pointed up. So what God is saying to Noah is this. This solution of the flood didn't work. I have a better solution. See, I think in most of our brains, we have this idea that if we could get rid of all the bad people on earth, ISIS, North Korea, Basar al-Assad in Syria, uh, your next door neighbor that annoys you, we get rid of all the bad people, then this would be heaven. Well, that was the flood. All the bad people were gotten rid of and the 0.0001% was left. And guess what we find out? He's still bad. Read the rest of this story, verse 21. Noah gets drunk at 600 years of age, takes off all of his clothes and something weird happens. I'm sorry about that word picture. <laughs> it's pretty gross, but that's the Bible. It gives you like, okay, even Noah, the hero, he goes south. And I've been saying this at church. What else got on the ark besides humans and animals? Sin. Sin got on the ark. So what God is saying is here, is this, this new solution is a better solution. And I'm hanging my bow, my weapon in the skies and look way, which way it's pointed. Every time you look at the rainbow, every time you look at this bow, look at which way it's pointed. It's pointed up. The better solution is I will, I will absorb all the wickedness, all the arrows, all the wrath, all the violence, all the poison, I'll absorb it all into myself. That's the way this is going to be solved. I'll pay the price. That's the solution. Seen here in this covenant to Noah. How does that work? One final text for you. It's Isaiah 53. You can turn there if you want. If you know the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was giving these songs And these songs, all of them speak about Jesus, his work. And the last one is Isaiah 53. It's brilliant because it describes exactly this work. Listen to this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? The gospel is hard to believe. And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Verse two, for he, this is Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one with whom men have hid their faces, 
He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the work of Jesus. The bow was pointed up and the arrows that my sin have caused were laid upon Jesus. That's what this text is saying. See, here's the thing. Even if you forgive somebody, there still has to be a payment. Do you know that? I'll explain it like this. If you invite my family over for a meal, there's a lot of us, there's nine of us. I tell people that invite us over, we are like a swarm of locusts. We'll eat your house plants, the wax fruit, it'll be gone. So just know that. Just, <laughs> I'm preparing you. So we come over, we eat everything. And then a spontaneous game of indoor soccer breaks out because that's what happens at my house all the time. And, and while this spontaneous game of soccer is being played, the ball hits your 72-inch parabolic screened flat screen, right? And busts it. Now you can forgive the offender, but someone has to pay, right? You can forgive the offender. Come on, I forgive you, but you got to stop toe punching the ball, Matt. You got no control. Stop breaking my stuff. Someone still has to pay for the screen. See, God forgives, but even more than that, he pays. Why did Jesus die? To forgive and to pay. Jesus died to forgive and pay. That's Genesis chapter nine. The bow's pointed at me. I'll pay. I will pay Matt. I will pay Edgewater. I will pay Grants Pass. I will pay Josephine County. I will pay Oregon. I will pay America. I will pay the world. I will pay. I will pay for your envy. I'll pay for your gossip. I'll pay for your lies. I'll pay for your anger. I'll pay for your selfishness. I'll pay for your violence. I'll pay for your vengeance. I will pay. That's verse six. The iniquity of us all was laid upon him. That's the good news. That's the good news. But it gets even better because the resurrection tells us this. The resurrection tells us this, that more than just being forgiven and paid for, the glorious ruins that we were get transformed. That we become something different through Jesus. That he, if you would, puts us back together. That's why in verse five it says, by his wounds we are healed. We're healed from something. Healed from what? Selfishness, bitterness, anger, guilt, the weight sin, the cycle, we are healed. Jesus says this in John chapter eight, verse 36, whom the son has set free is free indeed. You're set free. 
That stuff that used to cling to you and weigh you down, you're set free. You're forgiven, you're paid, and you're set free because you're resurrected. And the sign of that, the sign of that resurrection, you know what it is? Like the rainbow is the sign that God's gonna take everything. This beautiful clash of storm and sun and beauty and violence, that clash creates the rainbow. The sign that you and I have been resurrected into a new life, you know what it is? It's baptism. It's this right here. So when I baptize somebody, I tell them this. I say, everybody has a birthday. Today, you have a death day. And I grab them and I plunge them under the water and hold them <laughs> for a while. No. <laughs> I say, this, this sign that we do, it's Romans 6, and this is what it means. It means when you go into these waters, it's like being buried. And when you come out, it's like being resurrected. And so I tell every person, you go home and you write on your calendar, April 16th, 2017, I died. But I was resurrected into newness of life in Jesus Christ. The glorious ruin that I am is going to be remade. Instead of being a lame old Lamech, I'm now being remade into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this water symbolizes. And I say, you appropriate that power. But by when the enemy comes to you and begins to tempt you with the old ways that you used to live, the junk that caused selfishness and bitterness and violence and vengeance, what you say is this, no, no, that Matt Heverly died. May 22nd, 1991. And I was resurrected into newness of life. And I don't do that garbage anymore. I don't live like Lamech. I live like my Lord Jesus Christ because I've been resurrected into his power. That's why Jesus died. Praise God, it is good news. Who can believe this report? It's that good. And so on Easter, we love to do this sign right here where the old Jew is drowned in these waters of Christ's death and the new you is resurrected into his life and his power so you can be a new kind of human, a renewed kind of human, where the old things are passed away and behold, all things become new. What you struggled with and the violence and the vengeance that consumes all of us, that poison is absorbed by him and you, are, you and I are set free. So we invite you this day to come down and to be baptized. Come down, go into these waters like many of us have and experience his power. Something happens in baptism. I can't explain it, but I know I, I experienced it in my life. I know the old me, something happened to the old me on May 22nd so many years ago that captured my heart in a way that has kept me close to him. And I've been changed. So if you want to be baptized, stand up, come on down here, and we'll baptize you. You can join with Jesus Christ, unified in his death, burial, and resurrection. The greatest sign, maybe, of all. And we get to welcome you to the family of Jesus Christ.